Welcome to the Human Performance Podcast. Here we talk about everything to do with human performance and how leaders and organizations can get the best out of themselves and their people. I'm your host, Alex Young. My guest on the podcast this week is Mita Malik. Mita's a corporate change maker with a track record of transforming businesses. Mita's currently the head of inclusion, equity, and impact at Carter, and was previously head of inclusion and cross-cultural marketing at Unilever. And she's also a LinkedIn top voice, a contributor for Entrepreneur Magazine and Harvard Business Review, and her writing has been published in Adweek, Fast Company, and Business Insider. Mita's now the co-host of the recently launched The Brown Table Talk podcast, where she and Dee Marshall share stories and tips on how to help women of color win at work and advice for allies on how they can show up. Today, we talk about inclusivity, the impact of the great resignation, and how leaders can become more empathetic and inclusive to retain the best talent in 2022. Hey, Mita, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. And um, we're going to be talking about lots and lots of topics that are so, so important to people at the moment on the back of things like the Great Resignation um, and on me continuously talking about the importance of soft skills all the time on this podcast. But before we get there, it'd be great if you could introduce yourself and your background to all of the listeners. Well, I'm Mita Malik. I live in Jersey City, New Jersey. I am a passionate storyteller focused on multicultural marketing. I'm a diversity equity and inclusion executive, and most importantly, um, mom to Jay, who's nine, going on 19, and Priya, who's six, going on 16. And it has been a tough two and a half years, but I'm still standing. Amazing. And, you know, you've got a, just a fantastic background in, um, in, in just in corporate, really, I, I would say. And, and obviously, um, the, the landscape of inclusivity and diversity, even just over the last sort of, you know, three, four years has, has been through so many kind of ups and downs, so many transformations. What are some of the things in, you know, a period of time for corporates that, that's been with such upheaval and change that, that you have seen both good and bad? I think clearly with what happened in the U.S. in the summer of May 2020, my good friend, DC Marshall, who's co-host with me of our podcast, Brown Table Talk, she has coined the diversity tipping point. You know, things change right after the diversity tipping point. And it is when corporate America, in particular, started to say, yes, Black Lives Matter, and we're going to show up and show up for ending racial inequities and injustice. And so from that time, we've seen a lot of progress. I am, Alex, a half glass full person, which is why I do this work. My husband jokes with me, he's half glass empty, but I'm an eternal optimist and <laughs> progress has been slow. We know that. And there's been some green shoots and there's been performative allyship. There's been organizations and companies who have said they would commit to things that haven't happened. There was a Wall Street Journal article last year that did an audit talking about how much was pledged in this space and how much has, how many of those promises have been unfulfilled. And so that's something I'm constantly looking at in the marketplace and just interested in to see what progress companies are making. And this is really difficult work. It's really difficult work. And it's, it's always something that, um, you know, more needs to be done by corporates as a whole. I think, you know, that there's, there's lots and lots of us out there who, who are just, you know, very passionate about making sure that workplaces and workforces are 
as diverse to bring that diversity of, of thoughts and, and representation to, mm-hmm. to organizations. And, you know, from my own background, working in the healthcare sector and especially in surgery, right. which traditionally was both very male dominated, um, but, but it was mm-hmm. also very sort of white male dominated. Um, that was always a real concern because if I was doing, you know, talks at local high schools or anything like that, even, you know, with my best intentions of talking about inclusivity, I don't look like, you know, some of the people we want to get into those workforces. What are some of the, the, the things that you've seen work well in terms of outreach um, and, and really helping people to, to understand that, that it's not just, um, you know, the, the, the types of people who are in these sort of executive positions who, who can get there? I think when it comes to recruiting and building your candidate pipeline, building diverse pipelines and getting access to partnerships and schools where the talent is there. Right. And I think sometimes the bias is where you might not know the talent, right. You might not know the talent. And so I'll never forget years ago working with a company and they said, Oh, Mita, we did our very best to ensure that we'd have diversity representation for our intern class. And I'm like, well, tell me more. We went to our networks. We posted for the roles. We each individually interviewed people. And the day our intern class showed up, it was 25 predominantly white women and some white men. And so what happened? What went wrong? And so as I diagnosed the situation, I said, well, employee referrals are amazing. And if we all have that honest moment and say, we are surrounding ourselves with people who look like us, act like us, and think like us, we have self-segregated. And so that is what happened. These, these leaders, they were very passionate. They individually went out to find interns. It was their first intern program. And they all individually went out and hired interns. And then when they all showed up, they said, wow, this is a homogenous group. And so that is where employee referrals can be great right? Because who doesn't like to refer someone that they've worked with before? Oh my, I worked with Mita. I worked with Alex. They're amazing. Here's why. But you have to, there are unintended consequences to that, right? If I am only recommending people who act like me, look like me, and think like me, that is not helping when we think about how we diversify our workforces. And, you know, a bit of an esoteric question, but in, in your experience, do you think that, you know, when things like that happen, or I'm sure you've seen uh, people hiring and, and they end up with, with departments or organizations who are predominantly of one demographic. Do you, pe- do you think people actually really understand and have insight into having some even just subtle type of inherent bias there? Or, or do you think it's, it's you know, really difficult to sort of educate people around that? I do this work because I feel like I can help move people in their journey. You have to meet people where they are, and that's what can be exhausting about this work. I find that most people I work with are open to hearing the feedback. And if I can coach them, they might just see what they didn't see before and see that area of opportunity. Oh, wow, here I was doing a good thing, relying on employee referrals. And if I'm honest with myself, my network itself is not very diverse, right? So that can actually do more harm than good. I find that most people that I work with are open to it. If I can find one opening and I can coach you, I will take it. And there are some people who aren't, right? And so I think most of the people who approach me and want to work with me want to learn and, and want to understand how they could have made a different action or a choice. And I think to your point, a lot of this stuff has to happen early on, right? It's too late when the intern class shows up that day. The question is, how have you sourced the candidates? 
How are you looking at their resumes? How are you interviewing? Who is on the interview panels? How are you debriefing? How are you making decisions? And then how are you looking at the totality of the makeup of the class? So I think doing all of that work up front in any situation is just going to serve you better because you can't fix it at that moment when the 25 interns have showed up. And in your work, when you are coaching, um, you know, the, the people that you work with, how much of, of what you do is, I suppose, kind of mindset work and helping people sort of understand their existing either biases or just their ways of thinking? And how much is it kind of that process side where it is, you know, making changes at a you know, system level yeah. to, to optimize how people might be hiring their processes? It has to be both, because here's what we forget to recognize. Companies are made out of people. It's not the company and then the people. It's one and the same. And so even you think about processes, who created the processes we did? I created processes and guess what? I have bias, I'm human. So how do we have checks and balances? So it's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. And it's a bit of having the courage to say, we actually don't have any process for diverse slates. How can we change that? We don't have any partnerships that will help us get access to diverse pipelines. How can we change that? You know, it's having the courage to say, why are we going to the same five agencies of record? When we think about supplier diversity, I don't care if you have a $50,000 check or a $5,000 check to write for a video you're making. Why are you going to the same businesses? Have you thought about how you might use that opportunity to bring in a Black-owned business, a veteran-owned business, LGBTQ plus-owned business? So I think part of it is, Alex, is like, there, there is bias happening every day at work. My job is to figure out how to interrupt it for a leader and also for the leader to have the courage to ask the question, why do we do things this way? Who decided and are we open to changing the way? You're listening to the Human Performance Podcast by Verti. If you're enjoying this episode, why not join our newsletter? When you sign up, you'll receive a copy of Level Up straight to your inbox every Thursday with the latest tips, tricks, and news about all things human performance. Head over to verti.com forward slash newsletter to sign up. That's verti.com forward slash newsletter. You can find this in the show notes. Anyway, back to the episode. Hey, we work. Um, you know, we, we've touched on some of the, you know, the big change that have happened just over the last few years in terms of um, that, that sort of corporate DNI outlook. But obviously, you know, we're, we're still going through a period of, um, you know, what, what has been termed by the media as the yes. great resignation on the back of the pandemic, where people have been working from home and, and they've seen other opportunities. How, how have you seen that sort of affect corporates in, in your own work? I wrote a piece for Fast Company and in it, I coined it, not the great awakening, not the great resignation, excuse me. I coined it the great awakening. Now I know there's the great reshuffle, the great reset, the great, but I called it the great awakening because I read a study that McKinsey did and they talked about all the reasons that people are leaving and saying, I quit. And would you know, the number one reason is not for the, they want a meditation app or they want more money or they want free snacks. It is because they don't feel like they belong. And this is disproportionately driving people of color to make a change and make a different choice. Because I think, I believe, and I have experienced this myself, there is so much pent up emotion about the way we used to work, dealing with toxic bosses, bullying, harassment, places where we weren't celebrated, not recognized, not seen, not valued. Enough is enough. 
people are saying enough is enough. I'm going to make a different choice. And so I think that has been the accumulation of things that have happened for many years. And this was the breaking point, tipping point, but it is the great awakening. And so leaders who are not recognizing that will be left behind when you think about the choices talent are making. So you have to ask yourself, how are you showing up as a leader? How are you showing to support your team? How are you showing to give them credit, to make them feel valued, to make them feel like they contributed? All of those things, that is what's going to keep people. That is the biggest retention tool. It's not giving me 5,000 more dollars. Yeah, I mean, I I remember that. There's that um, fantastic study where they looked at, um, you know, the number one metric that's sort of related to people's job satisfaction and the reason that they stayed at companies. And um, while, you know, uh, your your remuneration was certainly part of it. I think the figure they pulled out was something like seventy five thousand uh, dollars. Where if you know people were paid that or above that, um, actually the the main driver was exactly as you said that that value aspect and just being valued Absolutely. in work and and being able to make a difference. And I think that's yeah. very true. You know, we talk about you know hu- human performance or high performance on this podcast a lot. And whether you're in a sports team, whether you um, are in a corporate team, or, or whatever the team is. Um, if you are feeling like you're contributing and are being recognized for your contribution, Absolutely. that's the thing that makes you feel good. And, and I think so many people forget that, right? Yeah. I will speak from a personal place, and I'm sure this will resonate with many people. You cannot put a price tag on feeling valued and seen, right? It is, it is an amazing feeling when you feel that. And so it would be a lot. I'm not saying there's no number, but it would be a lot. <laughs> For someone to leave a place where they feel so valued, so seen, they feel cared for, someone cares about their career, someone's advocating for them, right? That is priceless. And so that is what we should be focusing on in the way we're working right now. And for, you know, anyone listening who's in a, you know, managerial position um, in a, in a corporate, what are some of the, you know, what were some of the pieces of advice that you might give them in terms of how they are having their one-to-ones or communicating with their team members or their people yeah. that can really sort of, you know, add value in, in those conversations they have every day. I think one-to-ones are sometimes the most underutilized tool we have just to check in on people, see how they're doing, how they can support them. And I've been guilty of this. How often do we cancel the one-on-one? Oh, we're too busy. We don't have time. Right. And that is what people just want to make sure that they know you're doing good work. You're contributing to the company. You're dedicated. You're loyal, right? We all want to be seen. You know, recently, Alex, I, I posted on LinkedIn and I love LinkedIn and share a lot of uh, my content and thoughts there. You know, what were the characteristics of some of the best leaders I had? And it was individuals I was thinking about this. Some of the best leaders I had were people who took the time to send me handwritten notes. What a lost art form, like handwritten notes that showed words of appreciation for what I did gave me opportunities to present my own work to senior management, had my back when I made mistakes, didn't kick me when I was down, coached me, made sure I was paid and paid fairly and equitably and fought for that. Also gave me coaching and developing opportunities. And then for me, one of the most powerful things leaders have done for me to advocate for my career is to say my name in rooms when I am not present. Say my name. I don't know if you all know Mita, Here's some of the projects she's working on. I actually think we should consider her for this promotion. Or I think we should ask her to join the CEO's task force. And so those are the ways in which leaders need to be showing up and need to be asking yourself, are, are doing that self-reflection? Like, are you showing up for your people in this way? 
And how could you be showing up differently starting today? It's something that I'm absolutely fascinated about on almost a daily basis uh, because I'm an absolute nerd. But, um, you know, I think that the leaders in, in any industry, right, you know, whether again, whether it's kind of sports teams or whether it's, uh, you know, corporates or any sort of high performing organization, leadership training. And, and I say training in almost inverted commas. Does it really exist? I, you know, I always think that there's a lot of experiential touch points and, and, you know, those, even those examples you just gave, they're so powerful, but, but they'll only get, um, you know, into leaders' minds if, if they're sort of fed back and, or, you know, they're listening to things like this and, and, you know, stories like the one you just told that there's not really, um, a, a piece of education. There's nothing you learn at school about how to be a good leader. Do, do you think that that? needs to kind of fundamentally change for, for executives, but also anyone in a corporate setting? Absolutely. If you are scared and struggling, trying to figure out how to keep talent in this marketplace, and we know there's balance in life, this will shift, but right now it's the employee's marketplace. They are in the driver's seat. Ask yourself all of these questions. Fundamentally, how are you showing up for people every day? And I will tell you, Alex, I have learned from the great leaders as much as I have learned from the bad toxic leaders. So some of my, actually, if I was to look at gifts in life and silver lining, I have learned so much from bad bosses and I, bad leaders and I thank them because it reminds me of how I don't want to show up. And also like, I am not a perfect leader. So it's also just, you, cal you calibrate over time because you have to meet people halfway. I'm not changing my style to necessarily become you and you're not going to do the same, but if we're going to work together and we care about each other, we're going to build a relationship where we meet halfway on how we want to work together. I think it's, it's really interesting. And I think, you know, the whole um, nomenclature around, you know, chief executive yes. um, officer or, or, you know, any sort of leadership term, a lot of them come from kind of military, you know, terminology originally. And there's that idea that, uh, you know, the leader is someone who is dictating exactly Absolutely. what to do. And actually, you know, especially through, the, the pandemic, where we've seen a lot of uncertainty, leaders have had to, uh, you know, really sort of show that vulnerability and, and you know, well, good leaders you know, would do that every day and say things like, we're, you know, we're not 100% certain right. what's going to happen here, but this is what we're going to do and, and this is how we're going to work together. Um, I, I think that's really, really powerful. And that, that almost kind of empathetic type leadership and communication is, is so important. Do, do you think that... Um, from the people that you sort of work with and coach, do you think sort of empathy comes naturally to, to many people sort of in the corporate setting? Or do you think it is, it's sort of something that, that is learned through different experiences? I think if I react to what you just said about how leaders have been trained, sort of to sit on the top of the pyramid and everyone else is at the bottom, there was really no need for empathy because you just do what I say right? Because I'm at the top. What do I care? So it was almost like we were learned in some ways schooled not to be empathetic. And now I think so much of the structures in my team is like a circle or a round table. We're all sitting at eye level. We're all on the same field. And so I think that empathy is something, it's a skill and a muscle that you have to learn because it is about gaining an understanding for experiences that aren't your own. And so I'll never know what it's like to walk in your shoes but can I build enough of a relationship with you? And can I think about what it might be like from your perspective? And so that's the, the constant journey because you're not going to ever have all of, you know, you're never going to understand every life experience. You have to, every time you work with someone, you gain a different perspective and try to understand, okay, how would this person see it through, through, through their lens? And I don't think we've spent enough time 
as leaders talking about empathy. I think that's certainly changed in the last two and a half years. You know, I also think just as someone who has been branded as a woman of color leader, I hope someday we don't have to brand people in that way, but I'm not naive to think that's the case today, right? Because there's, uh, there is bias when I show up on screen or how people perceive me as soon as they see me. But this idea that kindness, empathy, all of these skills are more seen as a weakness. And even feedback I've been given, you're being too kind, you're being too nice, right? Or if I go on the other end, you're being too mean, you're being too aggressive. You need to tone it down. It's like, can I ever get it right? <laughs> it's like this, right? But I think now empathy <laughs> is one of the greatest retention tools, right? One of the greatest retention tools, empathy and kindness on showing up for your teams. Yeah, I've, I've always found it fascinating coming from obviously a, a healthcare background where um, you're hired, I guess, into you know medicine from when you apply to medical school with, with empathy being part of your kind of you know, Hippocratic oath almost, um, in, in terms of how you're sort of selected. Um, and, and some people are good at that, you know, other people, when things get very stressful, probably forget to be a little bit empathetic, even in, even in healthcare. And, um, I think, you know, that that's true in the corporate setting where, uh, even at hiring, you know, are we hiring people who are particularly empathetic? P- perhaps not, especially if you've got things like, you know, sales quotas to hit, you're, you're looking for people who, um, have those sales skills or, or have those, you know, coachable skills to, to get you mm-hmm. um, to, to your next kind of quota and goal. I mean, it, it also sort of, uh, you know, just, just comes to mind what we were just talking about, the, the sort of the great resignation or great awakening as you, you know, appropriately kind of, you know, rephrased it there. I think one of the really interesting points there, as you said, was there was a lot built up around work and what work was and, and whether mm-hmm. people enjoyed going in and doing that nine to five job. And, um, often when I have, um, spoken with people on this podcast, the, the people who have, you know, transitioned into new careers or started new ventures or have been entrepreneurs or, you know, we've had people who've left their job and been kind of sports professionals, whatever it is, there's always some kind of event that happens, whether that is a bad event, like a family member passing away to show people the, you know, how precious kind of life is or whether it's a positive event showing that they can do something. And it, it kind of always occurred to me that with the, the pandemic suddenly people on a global scale were sort of put through that period of, of mm-hmm. you know a, a lot of a lot of you know negativity and, and fear really around sort of mortality um have, have you seen that kind of happen i suppose at work where people have suddenly just reevaluated things completely uh, in terms of you know people who've probably been in corporate jobs for many many years and suddenly they've thought gosh this is an opportunity for me to uh, you know to work from home and do something that i enjoy I think there's real concern, real, real concerns around mental health and people finally putting their mental health first. I think there's concerns about how people have been treated and I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm not going to continue to be a cog in a wheel and I'm going to go start my own company. You're seeing, I think, particularly with entrepreneurship, I, for entrepreneur, enjoy covering founders. And I talk to a lot of founders who have said I was sort of done with my ideas not mattering not being able to move with speed and, and efficiency, I'm, I'm going to go do this on my own. So that is also something that, that we've, I've seen as well. I also think the other thing, the other big trend that is really weighing on my mind that I am surprised that more leaders are not screaming from their rooftops is what the pandemic has done to women in the workforce. And just from a U.S. perspective alone, we know 
Alex, that we are down to levels for women participating in the workforce that we haven't seen since the 1980s. Okay, 1980s. And so that means over four decades of progress for women have been wiped out. And predominantly, it has really impacted caregivers. Caregivers, I would say uh, women with children, I would say women with elder parents. Also, AARP had a really astounding stat of women over 50 being let go, laid off at the beginning of the pandemic and still not being able to re-enter the workforce. And so for many women in my life, they never had a choice. They never had a choice. They had to put their families first because our villages were ripped out from under us. Our communities that helped us raise our families were gone. And so that to me, I, I, I am just, I'm too tired to scream anymore. I'm going to keep fighting for this, but I don't understand why more leaders in corporate America is not up in arms of what, what's, what's happening and what will continue to happen. So I think that as we are in 2022, going into 2023, this will be one of the biggest things we talk about from a diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective is how do we bring more women back into the workforce? And we know for women of color, the impact is even more devastating. Well, it's uh, you know, it's a great topic. You know, certainly worth sort of putting at the front of of the conversation. And obviously, you know, you yourself are so passionate about this. You, as you mentioned, have, have started your own podcast with Dee Marshall, talking about um, you know specifically how to help women and, and women of color win at work. What, what are some of the things that you know you've you've learned from doing that podcast? Yeah, so Dee and I started this podcast. We had the idea for over two years and never did anything about it. We've known each other for quite a long time. She was my coach. I'm the client she couldn't get rid of. We did a lot of business together. And then we just had a deep friendship where we would talk to each other about all the things we were experiencing in, in our workplaces and had experienced. So we decided to start Brown Table Talk. It's now part of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. And we talk about all the stories. We unpack the tea. We include all of the juicy details of things that have happened to us and women of color in our workplaces and how we can help women of color go from not just you know, surviving to thriving in their workplace. And Alex, allies are a big part of that. So we welcome you into the conversation for you to listen. So we really talk about stories and topics, one or two on the podcast. And at the end, we leave tips for our listeners. And what's been really astounding is we've had women of color reach out to us to say, wow, Mita, it's like you're reading my journal. Like when you talk about having your name mispronounced, you talk about your work being stolen. You talk about being called a diversity hire. This has all happened to me. And then I have allies. I have white men in my life texting me saying, I never knew that happened to you. You never shared that story. And now I feel like I have a seat at the table to hear stories that normally allies might not hear all the details of. But now I can do better and be better when I'm in the workplace. I think about these things differently. It's really interesting. And obviously, you know, we, I'm just a huge fan of using storytelling and, and, you know, one of the reasons that we started this podcast was to get some of these, these stories out into the open, um, about, you know, whether it's people's struggles, um, uh, you know, overcoming obstacles, whatever it is, whether it's sports professionals, we've had astronauts, we've had people in corporates, but, but actually just talking about these things is is Mm -hmm. so, so important. And I think it's easy to forget. And, um, it's it's something that you know sometimes some of the experiences aren't easy to talk about um but but it's just so important to to share those experiences to uh you know as as you've you know shown through that example to then feel make make other people feel like they are not alone because chances are someone else out there has has been through or is going through that same that same process so i mean have you sort of started to see 
real kind of you know benefits you know for yourself just, just from sort of doing that and 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 you know sort of diving probably even more into the research behind what's happening yeah. than uh, you know before, than before doing the podcast. I would say selfishly, it's been really healing for me to share some of these stories. And and like you say, stories have the power to inspire change. So if I share my story, I hope that 20, 30, 40, in the hundreds, other people will share their stories. And we can't change what we don't discuss. So we can't change what we don't discuss. So if we don't discuss it, how do we know what we're going to change? And the other reason D and I started this is because we found a really big gap in the marketplace. You know, a lot of the leadership coaching and advice is created by white men for white men, traditionally, historically. And we wanted to bring a different perspective. One of the episodes that drops for us uh, pretty, pretty soon is called How to Stop Being Indispensable. Now, isn't that an interesting topic? Because aren't we all taught to be, in, taught to be indispensable? But what if, as has happened in my career, I am so indispensable that I won't get promoted because I'm stuck in my career because my manager sees me as being too valuable and as being a talent hoarder. And I have done everything to go above and beyond, but I've actually trapped myself in the job. Isn't that interesting? And I had a, uh, a mentor of mine who's a white man who I'm very close to said, this was the mistake you made. I said, I can't get off this person's team. What did I do wrong? He's like, you became indispensable. Why are you taking on all this work that's not going to get you promoted? I'm like, wow, game changing. So that's that we just, we want to provide a different perspective on topics that have been talked about a lot, but through a different lens and lived experience. Amazing. Well, you know, we, we've touched on, um, uh, you know, coaching and, and mentors and, and folks like that, you know, during this conversation. Um, as we start to wrap things up, we always ask at the end of the podcast, uh, guests to give their own human performance hero, people who've inspired them on their journey. So really interested to learn who yours might be. I have many. I'm, I'm very lucky. I have many. I'll give you um, two. My father, who I, la- who I lost suddenly five years ago. And everything he did to come from India um, and build a life for my brother, mom, and I, um, and rose from, you know, taking odd jobs as a janitor to being a fortune executive is a pretty remarkable story. And I miss him every day. And then there's Gretchen Carlson, who I don't know as well, but I've moderated panels with her a few times. And she's phenomenal what she did to really shed light on the things that were happening at Fox News and what she had experienced and so many other women experienced and now founding a nonprofit called Lift Our Voices, which is really on a mission to eradicate NDAs and non-disclosure, non-disclosure agreements. It's just phenomenal. She's a real, real hero of mine. Well, just fantastic examples. And um, yeah, I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure um, having you on today's Thank podcast. Um, I'm sure lots and lots of people will be wanting to to listen to your own podcast and to find out a little bit more about what you do. So um, if they do want to jump onto those, where, where can they go to find out more? Um, so Brown Table Talk, part of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. It's on Apple and Spotify. And then you can please follow me on LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. And, you. Uh, you know, I think just on, on behalf of everyone uh, in the, uh, you know, diversity inclusivity space, I think just keep keep up the good work. And um, it can feel a little bit lonely sometimes. But I think with, you know, continuing to sort of put the message out there, there will be, you know, great change hopefully throughout this year and, and into next year on the back of some of the, you know, the things we've talked about. So, uh, you know, fantastic conversation and uh, wishing you all the best in the future. Thank you so much. 